Good to see you all. We're looking this morning at the opening verses, the opening scene in the Sermon on the Mount, something that's popularly known as the Beatitudes. We're going to read the Beatitudes in a moment. If we could have that lead slide, the one with uh, Moses and Christ. Yeah, that's the one. Thank you. The way we'll approach this, and I'm, I, I'm approaching it this way because I, I sense when I read it, this is how Matthew, as the author, wants us to see this moment, is that Christ stands before us as a new Moses, a, a new and greater Moses, and he has come from God to renew Israel. So as the scene unfolds, the entire Sermon on the Mount, not just the Beatitudes, although that's where it begins, it's set, it's set on a mountain. And Matthew highlights that. He mentions the mountain a couple of times. And why is that? Well, it's to help us see it the way it's being played out. Namely, this is a new Moses, a new Mount Sinai, a new giving of the law or a new instruction for a renewed Israel, a renewed people of God, new Moses, renewing Israel, new covenant, all that is wrapped up in this sermon. Let's read the first 16 verses uh, of the sermon, most of which will be the Beatitudes, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, by the way, that's a posture of authority, sitting. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. They came to him. Very important detail. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. Notice the references in these closing verses to you. He's talking to these people that have climbed up the side of this mountain to listen to him teach. He's talking to them. They are part of this renewing of Israel that God's going to do through Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. That's an amazing statement. We're primed to think, oh, no, Christ is the light of the world. Well, amen, he is. But he says that in him, through him, we become the light of the world. This is about Christ's people. Where am I here? Uh, you are the light of the world. Thank you. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill. What does that remind us of? Sounds suspiciously like Mount Zion, the place where God dwells. Nor, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The renewing of Israel that God sends Christ to bring begins with him, but his disciples are part of it. The opening verse of the whole Sermon on the Mount says his disciples came to him. They ascend this hill. The scene is meant, it's described in such a way as to remind us of Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain and the people gather at the foot of the mountain. Now we have a new Moses and this being renewed Israel gathers to him. The renewing comes from him, but it's about them. Verse 13, you are the light You are the salt of the the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine. See, they are part of the equation of what God is going to do. Verse 14, 514, he calls them, these people, sitting at his feet, the city set on a hill. As I mentioned a moment ago, this is a clear reference back to Mount Zion, the way Zion is portrayed in the law of Moses and uh, particularly in the Psalms. It's the place where God's glory dwells, even before they were in the land. In, the, in Deuteronomy 12, I believe it is, it talks about God will appoint a place for his name to dwell. And that's all fulfilled with the establishing of Jerusalem and the temple. The Psalms call that city the joy of the whole earth. And that identity now is being placed on the people who have come to Christ. That includes these disciples in the, in the sermon, and it includes all of us here this morning. Now, this renewing brings blessing. Jesus is establishing a new covenant, and covenants in Judaism always bring blessing. If we could have the next slide, that would be Thank you. Moses at, Israel, at Mount Sinai blesses Israel, and now the new Moses blesses the people that come to him. Moses in Deuteronomy 33 says, Blessed are you, O Israel, a people saved by the Lord. It's Deuteronomy 33:29. Now, the new Moses, Jesus, blesses his people as well, those who have come to him. What's the blessing he pronounces? Well, there's eight of them. They're called the Beatitudes. So let's have a look. And the question all the way through that we want to explore is who are the blessed ones? Who are the blessed ones? Okay, the first answer to that question, who are the blessed ones, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The photo you see comes from my fairly brief career in the CFL, which you maybe didn't know about. But one day I got the wind knocked out of me and I fell on the ground. If you've ever had that happen, you know being winded, as we call it, 
it can be very, very physically painful. It did happen to me once when I was 12 or 13. I was sledding with some friends, went rocketing down this very steep uh, hill, and got thrown off the sled and was airborne for a few seconds and then thump, uh, landed right on my chest. The wind was knocked out of me. And I think that was probably the most severe physical pain I've ever had in my whole life. It, It took me a while to even stand up. And when I did, I was staggering around. I could barely walk. I'm sure I looked like a drunk, except I was only 12 years old. Being winded is being poor in spirit. In both Uh, the Hebrew and Greek languages, the words they use for uh, spirit and breath happen to be the identical, the same word. To be poor in spirit is to be poor in breath, is to be out of breath, is to have no breath. You got winded. Something happened to you. Maybe it was your own fault, but you got winded, and now you're going, (gasps) you can scarcely walk, scarcely walk. That's a parallel illustration, I believe, of what Christ is talking about when he refers to people who are poor in spirit. They can barely breathe. And he's telling these people that have come in that condition, not because they're strong, not because they're upright. It's they're coming out of a sense of need. They're coming up the side of this mountain, recalling Israel gathering at Sinai to sit at the feet of Christ. And they come, here's the key, They come knowing their spiritual poverty. They can be rich in him, but on that coming, they they don't come rich, they come poor. That's the only way we can come to him. We come knowing that spiritual poverty, the wind knocked out of us, and then something amazing happens. He says these words, Blessed are you who are winded. Blessed are you who are gasping for breath. Blessed are you who coming up that mountain, you come staggering. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. The reason these people are declared blessed is because they come to the king that God sent to renew Israel. That changes everything. He's there on the mountain, and they come to him. That's why Matthew 5.1 is, is the key to the entire Sermon on the Mount. His disciples came to him. Have you come to him this morning? I hope you have. If you're already a Christian, maybe you need to come to him again. Climb up that mountain, and maybe you're gasping for air. If that's how you're feeling, that's okay, because he's already said, blessed are those who are out of breath. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the blessed ones? First answer to that question is the poor in spirit who come to him. The second group. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's different kinds of mourning. There's the kind of mourning we see in Romans 7 verse 24, where Paul says, wretched man that I am. He's mourning there. He's mourning. He's lamenting his own sin. And that's a good thing to mourn is our own sin. Jesus mourned several times. One is in Luke 19, verse 41. Luke 19, 41. On his entry to Jerusalem, and he wept over the city of Jerusalem because the city had not a clue of a clue as to who he was or what he was really all about or why God had sent him. And he could see this and he weeps. 
He wept over the city. He's mourning. Psalm 42, verse 9, is another kind of mourning. It says this, Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There's an unrighteous oppression that has come against the psalmist there that he doesn't understand. He's saying to God, what is going on? And this is happening to me, and because of it, I am in a state of mourning. Well, if we come in that state of mourning up the side of that hill to sit at the feet of Christ, we are pronounced blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The entire Bible is very clear that God is for those who mourn. Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 56, verse 8, describes God putting our tears in a bottle. Psalm 56, 8, You put my tears in your bottle. It shows that they matter to him. Perhaps the most heartening verse about mourning and pain is Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, 4 describes God wiping away our tears. And that happens at the end of the age when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven onto the earth. It's that spectacular final vision that God gives John in the book of Revelation. This great city, there are 12 entrances, and these people are all coming in. And as they come in, it says, he wiped every tear from their eyes. Most of you here this morning, I suspect, are parents, and you know that when you wipe tears from your children's eyes, you can't do it by long distance. You can't even do it from the other end of the room. You have to get close And that's what's so striking about that promise at the end of the age when God will do that for us. That's how close. It's not just a a sign of comfort. It's a sign of his nearness. He's going to get close enough to wipe the tears from our eyes. What a great hope. Who has that hope? Answer, the mourners, the sad people who in their sadness come up the side of that mountain and sit at Christ's feet He looks out out at them and he declares them blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are the blessed ones? Category three, the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a tricky one among the Beatitudes in a sense because he, Jesus in that verse does not really define what he means there by meek. The word that he uses could mean humble, it can mean gentle, it can mean afflicted, it can mean poor, like financially poor. It has a number of meanings, but there's a clue in the way he says it to the way he uses this term meek. If I want to be receive the blessing that comes to the meek. I need to know what meek means. And the answer is this. He says, I'll quote again, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's a quote. That's a quote from Psalm 37. And in Psalm 37, the psalmist describes two groups of people that receive the same promise, the same inheritance. They inherit the land. They inherit the land. 
In verse 11, the psalmist says, the meek will inherit the land. Well, then, you're, so you're still back where we started. Well, okay, that sounds great. Who are the meek? I want to be meek. Who are they? What does it look like to be meek? Well, the, the psalm gives us the answer to that question. It's two verses before that. I was just quoting Psalm 37.11. In Psalm 37.9, it says, Those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Aha! The meek are those who wait. The meek are those who know how to bank everything on God and they don't insist on such and such happening in a certain time frame. I'm just trusting God. I'm waiting. I'm just going to have to wait. And I know God's good and I know God's faithful. All I can do is trust him. The person that says that is meek. And Christ says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's people who say, say, all I can do is just trust God, so that's what I will do. We do that, and Christ declares us blessed. We inherit the earth. Who are the blessed ones? Category four is the thirsty. There's Charlton Heston from the original version back in the late 50s of Ben-Hur, that very dramatic scene. You may have seen the film one day, where he meets Jesus, but he doesn't realize it's actually Jesus. And Jesus, he's, he's nearly perished from, from thirst, uh, J- Judah Ben-Hur. And he meets Jesus who gives him water. But it's a very memorable way. You just see the, the thirst that was, is driving him there. The scriptures endorse thirst. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for, for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. Again, in Psalm 107, verse 9, he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. All of these things reflect the same underlying reality, which is desire. I desire more of God in my life. I desire to live righteously. I desire to see his righteousness reflected in my heart, in the church I'm a part of, in the wider society. Many years ago, when I was in college, I studied comparative religions. And I still remember when we got to the unit on Buddhism, Buddha taught that the source of problems in the world is desire. Because people desire something, they don't get it, so they commit all kinds of crimes to get it, or they live disappointed and hopeless So he says the solution is to stop desiring. The scriptures say something radically different and radically opposite to that. The scriptures say you should desire things. You need to desire them more, and you need to make sure what you're desiring and hungering and thirsting for are the right things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's different kinds of righteousness that we can hunger and thirst for. Righteousness in ourselves. Righteousness in our corporate life as a people. Righteousness in the wider society. The last 24 hours in the UK have not been a time where righteousness has been on display. We need to pray for the peace of cities that are having these terrorist attacks and, and see God's, trust God that his justice and righteousness will be manifested. All of those things come out of the same thing, which is desire. Hungering and thirsting 
for righteousness. The fact that we speak of desiring it implies that in a sense we don't have it. Like Paul in three, uh, Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained all this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He is pressing on and he's motivated by desire. When people do that, the renewer of Israel seated on this mountain becomes a new Moses and he declares them blessed. Who are the blessed ones? Category number five, the merciful. Mercy is showing kindness to someone who is suffering. Jesus gives us a very vivid picture of mercy in his parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, verse 37, it's the Samaritan, not the Levite or the Pharisee, who show mercy to the injured man on the road. And note Jesus there speaks of showing mercy. Mercy is something that we show by doing practical things for people. Mercy can take the form of forgiving someone who has hurt us. Have mercy on them. Mercy can take the form of practical help for someone in need. I'm blown away by the the story of all the work in Romania. I mean, talk about practical needs. That country has them. And what the, the team that's over there doing, it's a mercy mission. It's a mercy mission for the children, for the mothers, and so forth. Mercy can take the form of encouragement for someone who is discouraged. For much of my life, uh, I think it's fair to say I've had a proneness to uh, discouragement or even depression at times. And there's people in this church that have been hugely helpful to me by way of encouraging me. Dave, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. It's going to be all right. That sermon you gave was was good. You didn't trip over the pulpit this time. That was really, really good. (laughs) Verbal encouragement, affirmation, we all need it. I remember listening years ago, many years ago, to Pastor Barber. He used to be the pastor at Calvary Temple. And he said this, he said, doesn't matter how long you live or how mature you get in this earth, you'll never get to the place where you no longer need encouragement. It'll never happen in this life. And one way we can show mercy is by being encouragers. Encourage one another. Mercy givers are the blessed ones. Christ declares them blessed and said, we receive mercy. If we are merciful, we we will receive mercy. Who are the blessed ones? Category six, they are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. I'll explain this fellow with the bow and arrow in a second. The purity of heart that this verse is talking about does not mean sinless. You don't have to be sinless in your heart before you can receive the blessing Jesus is speaking of. The purity of heart that this verse is talking about describes undivided loyalty. It's talking about singleness of purpose. It's talking about what we read about in Psalm 86 verse 11, which may be the backdrop text to Jesus' statement about the pure in heart. 
Psalm 86.11 says, Give me an undivided heart. The fellow with the bow and arrow. We take that image to remind us of a moment in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, verse, or pardon me, Genesis chapter 49, verse 24. It's where Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, is praying for each of his 12 sons. He goes right down the line and prays at some length over each one of them. Has all kinds of interesting prophetic things that come out when he's just talking about his various sons. When he comes to Joseph, in verse 24, he says this, Archers attacked him from many sides, but his bow remained steady. Imagine if that's you in the picture, and you had other archers aiming at you and shooting at you from this way, that way, and the other way. It would be very difficult to keep your composure, to keep your focus, to keep your eye on the target, and so forth. But that's what Jake Joseph did. His bow remained steady, abused by his brothers, being lied about by Potiphar's wife, being for years in an Egyptian dungeon. Through it all, he had an undivided focus, an undivided loyalty, a singleness of purpose. His bow remained Steady. That is what Christ is talking about when he speaks of being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you decide to come up at the end to be prayed for, that's not a bad thing to ask for. Maybe you're feeling it at the moment. Velma and I are feeling it. Tony Grandy's family is feeling it. You're trying to keep focused on where God wants to use you in life and you're getting shot at from this side or that side or the other side, what's it mean for our bow to remain steady? May the Lord help us. Category number seven, who are the blessed ones? Who are the blessed ones? Category seven is the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Some of you may know, a lot of you don't know me yet because I've been away so much, but uh, I grew up in the States and uh, troubled family, I think that's putting it mildly, alcoholism, divorce, parents in and out of a mental institution and whatnot, it was not an easy situation. And there were a couple of people that my parents, my, my mother in particular, trusted. And when they would come to visit our house, there was peace. She would listen to them, and things would settle down. And even before I was a Christian, I had any idea of who Christ is or what living for God was all about. I began to see there's peace when, that, when Uncle Bill comes to visit our house. He was a peacemaker. He could sit mom down and get her to calm down. Now listen, okay, you know, Dave, I want you to remember such and such. And, and he brought peace. Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Peace means knowing how to have give and take in a relationship. Peace means knowing how to take ownership for what I have done wrong. Peace means having a godly reasonableness. Peace 
making means having concrete steps to bring harmony and understanding. Peacemaking means being willing to tackle awkward relational issues, which we all do face. I love this verse about peacemaking. It's in Proverbs. Proverbs 12, verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 20. Those who plan peace have joy. Those who plan peace have joy. Peacemaking is going to be about having a strategy, being able to plan and then take concrete steps. Those who plan peace have joy. The main peacemaking that God has done in the world is what he did at the cross. God made peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's Colossians 1 verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. We cannot achieve that. God's already achieved it through Jesus. But that was a vertical peacemaking. Now, that's already established, and if I'm included in that through faith in Christ, then I can extend that vertical peace at a horizontal level within my family, in the church, among friends, in my place of work, or whatever. I can be a peacemaker. Jesus says, if we do that, we're blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Who are the blessed ones? Final category, number eight, the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I became a Christian 50 years ago this past April. And about two or two and a half years after that, in the summer of 1970, I signed up. I'd only been a Christian a couple of years or maybe two and a half. I signed up to spend the summer on Youth with a Mission, and that was what brought me to Canada. That's where I met Velma on YWAM. The team we were on traveled all across, back and forth, over the southern BC mainland. And one place we stopped was Canmore. Have you ever been to Canmore? Some of you, oh yeah, good number have. Now, I don't know if this fine institution is still in business, but it was in business that summer in Canmore, Alberta, in the summer of 1970. This place in the slide called Paul's Pizza Palace, um, I think is just a photo. It's a photo from the internet. I suspect that place is down in the States. But in Canmore that summer, there was a Paul's Pizza Palace. And our team was in there one evening, sitting at a table, crowded around the table with a whole bunch of local kids from the town. And we were sharing the gospel with them. And they were very animated, extremely interested in peppering us with all kinds of questions about the Bible and who Jesus is and how do you know if you know, God's really with you. And it was just nonstop. It was amazing. Now, the only difficulty is that this crowd of kids pressing in around us, the YWAM team, were not buying any pizza. And Paul, the owner of Paul's Pizza Palace, soon took exception to this. And he indicated his disfavor to our team by grabbing me, because I was the leader of the team. He was a very, very big man. And I'm as big as you can see, which is not very big. (laughs) I'm not embellishing, I'm not exaggerating or making this up. He grabbed me like this, elevated me right off the floor. The Paul's Pizza Palace in Canmore was not like the one in the picture. It had steps like this going down the front, 
of the establishment onto the sidewalk, and he just hucked me right out the door. I arced over the, uh, in, through the air and down splat onto the sidewalk. I've been a Christian 50 years. That's still the only time I've been physically accosted for the name of Christ. <laughs> Unless one of you object to this sermon and come up and redo it again this morning. That'll be my second time. You know what? It gave me bragging rights the rest of the year, the rest of that summer, because nobody else had this happen. It was just me. So I was the, the persecuted guy. Now, I'm making light of it because it was a very momentary suffering for the gospel. It probably doesn't even deserve the word suffering. And there's Christians, as you all know, North Korea, many, many countries in the world were suffering nightmarish persecution. People in that category horrible things that are done to people because they stand for Christ or they stand for principle of justice. They suffer. And what does this king on the mountain whom God has sent to renew Israel and renew the world, what does he say about those kinds of people? He calls them blessed. And he says that the kingdom will belong to them. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What name? The name of Jesus. Christ calls them blessed. The kingdom is theirs. Now, where all this begins, I conclude by coming to the beginning. All this begins with that comment Matthew makes, his disciples came to him. I think that's got to be our takeaway verse this morning. His disciples came to him. Stagger to him if you need to, because you've had the wind knocked out of you. Okay, but stagger to him. Come. Bring your sorrows if you need to. But come, come to him. You might have been a Christian most of your life, but coming to Christ is not something you do only once. It's a style of life. We come to him moment by moment. Bring your sorrows, but come. Come in meekness, saying, you know, I realize what I'm up against at this point in my life. All I can do is abandon myself to the goodness of God and trust him. That's what I'm going to do. Christ calls you the meek, and he, prom- and he declares you blessed. Come, hungry and thirsty, but come. His disciples came to him. His disciples need to come to him continually. Come in need of mercy. Ready to learn how to show mercy, but come. Come needing him to unify your divided heart. Most of our hearts, most of the time, are not going in one direction toward Christ. They're going about 12 different directions. Well, come saying, Lord, I need you to unify my heart. Give me that bow that Joseph had. I can just keep aiming in one direction. Come needing peace so God can use you to bring peace. And come ready to suffer if it comes to that. He will declare us blessed. Amen. Amen.